Good morning. It's good to, um, well, be back after not being able to meet in the middle of the week because of the um, icy roads. Um, I'm always a little bit disoriented when my weekly schedule gets thrown off. I, I, I like to be with God's people and be with them worshiping God and singing His praises. And that's partly what we do when we study the Bible on Wednesday nights. And when I missed out on that, it threw my entire week off. I missed you all tremendously, and I'm so thankful to be back with you this morning singing songs and glorifying God, and now preparing to worship God by proclaiming His Word. As we come to our text this morning, uh, moving away from... um, the great theological truths that Paul has developed so far at the beginning of the book of Ephesians. We're now moving into the beginning of chapter 4 of that book. One of the things that we have to look at is this um, this marvelous organism that has been established through Jesus' ministry on earth. And and what we're talking about is the church. Remember, as we've moved through Paul's letter, we have seen what is a remarkable truth revealed to us. And Paul starts by laying or undergirding what he's about to say in chapter 4 with his theological evidence. And you may not have realized that's what we were looking at as we moved through the beginning of Ephesians, but that is certainly what we were uncovering. Here's the theological imperatives. First, we grappled with the condition of every man, every person, ever born, where we are at. Our destitute need of a Savior. And it's through understanding how desperately we need a Savior that we are able to understand what is the size and magnitude of God's grace in offering salvation to us. As we move through that, We begin to marvel at what God has done through the cross. We begin to realize that we've been established into this new organism, the church, and that we begin to identify ourselves, no longer identifying with the sins of the world or even the the issues that we once grappled with, but now identifying solely with our Savior, that is Christ. And then Paul in chapter 3, and this is where we've been for the past couple of weeks, begins to outline for us what it means that we have this tremendous grace before us. He interrupts himself, which I, I think it's funny in a letter when somebody interrupts himself. But he does. He, he begins to pray at the beginning of chapter 3, and he interrupts himself to reiterate once again, what is this remarkable thing that God has done? And, and he explains in chapter 3, verse 9, that what Christ has done and what God has done is so remarkable, it hasn't been disclosed to the entire world until this point. Not just the world. But chapter 9 describes the heavenly powers remarking at what is established in the church. Paul then prays for application, describing this great grace that God has given to us, this tremendous love that He has shown to us, that which he describes as unsearchable, a word which can also be translated as immeasurable, innumerable, 
and he asks us to know these dimensions. That we would know what is the breadth, what is the width, what is the length, what is the height of God's love. I say this this morning because what he's building up to continues to get bigger. If you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to um, go to our church website where you can hear um, that sermon. It was recorded and it's been published. And if you go there, you can listen to it and pick up on where we left off. But truly, the magnitude of God's love is, is, is remarkable in and of itself. I think the really... The only real application that we have in response to God's love when we begin to understand it, when the Spirit of God begins to reveal to us exactly what we're talking about, is simply awe and wonder. And sure, application goes further than that when we begin to understand how we're supposed to regard other people or the other Christians that we serve alongside, the other members of the church, how we should regard them, how we should regard the world, or how we should regard the the destitute position of anyone who has not seen what is this love. But I want to add that the application of understanding this unsearchable love is first and foremost the only appropriate response to such a wonderful theological truth as salvation by grace alone through faith alone. You may remember, though, one of the things I said last week was that the purpose of our study is not that we would be filled with information, but that we would instead be changed through transformation. After all, the familiar passage in Ephesians 2, 8, which describes the mechanisms of salvation, spills over into verse 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Our application is more than just understanding, because real understanding has a consequence in the way that we live our lives. Paul, in Ephesians, is talking about just a a gigantic subject. God's grace isn't something trivial that we can skate by, but here he's really rather briefly just covered what God has done in the first three chapters. But he's building up to something even bigger than that. The real point comes back to what is the church? What is the church? And as we move into chapter 4, we begin to see how important this is. Before we get started this morning, I want to just cover some some basic truths that that we understand through a study of God's Word, and we can answer just kind of as we get started, what is the church? First, we know that the church is not a building, it is not a place, it is the people. We understand that because of the word used in the New Testament to describe the church, the word most commonly Translated to church is ecclesia, 
which is a word stolen from the Greek culture, which describes a local called out assembly. And understanding that and looking at how the church functions and how it behaves in the, in, in the, uh, in the, in the Bible and that which is recorded, we understand that the church is not a place, not a physical structure, but it is a people. It is the assembly. Second, it is local. It has to be visible. The church has to be visible. Which means that it's not universal. This is actually pretty confusing when we start to understand um, the bigger implications of this, that the church is a local called-out assembly, because we also know that it would be ignorant to say that only one church is going to end up being Christ's body one day in heaven. That would be strange. And so we understand that there might be multiple local assemblies, but that one day they will be united together in what is a larger assembly in, in glory. Now, I say this not to be confusing or, or not to miss. Uh, cause anyone to stumble over this, but because I do think it's necessary when we look at what Paul begins to write in Ephesians chapter 4, and he speaks of the unity of the Spirit that we have, that this unity that we share is something that is in common with more than just believers within our body or within our church, but it is something that we share with members of the entire body of Christ. Something that is bigger than uh, Bigger than even a single church, bigger than even a single organization, it is the cumulative body of Christ that we will one day be joined with in glory. So we understand this, that the church is the local called out assembly of believers, that we have a greater unity with all those who share in the spirit that we now have within us. That this great establishment, which is amazing and remarkable, is worth fighting for. That it is worthy of our love and our sacrifice. And this is exactly the encouragement that Paul gives us. So let's turn to the Word and allow God's inspired truth to speak for itself. If you haven't opened your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4 yet, please do that so you can read along with me. But before I read out loud... I will ask that we pray together. <coughs> Our Father in heaven, I thank you so much for this time that you have brought us back together this morning, that we can worship you and that we can study your word together, that we can praise your name and that we can um, understand these truths. Lord, I realize that as a finite being, uh, there is no one here that is fully capable of understanding the magnitude of your grace, that there is no one here that is fully capable of understanding how remarkable your church is. But Lord, that which we are capable of understanding, I wish you would not withhold yourself from us. Lord, as we turn to your word, I pray that you would open the eyes of our heart, that we would be able to behold these truths as you have revealed them through your word to your church, that you have entrusted these secrets with us. And God, that you would encourage us to proclaim these truths to the whole world. In Jesus' heavenly name I pray, amen. And the Bible says, 
beginning in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I said that Paul has been building up to something bigger than just uh, what are the mechanisms of salvation. Understanding the magnitude of God's love now, our encouragement that we receive, or that Paul originally wrote to the church in Ephesus, is that we would walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we have been given. I think we understand clearly um, but, it, but it's worth reiterating again that salvation is by faith alone. That there is nothing a person can do to make themselves um, more ready to receive God's grace or more worthy to receive God's grace. There is simply nothing a person can do to save themselves. Christ has already done all of the work. The entire fulfillment of God's grace is accomplished in the cross person becomes saved simply because they put their faith in a Savior who is capable of saving them. That being said, no amount of good works is necessary to join the church. But as a consequence of receiving this great grace, this immeasurable love, good works come as a result there's something that changes within us in the way that we interact with one another. Paul's encouragement that we would walk in a manner worthy of, what, worthy of the calling to which we have been called all points to what is being said in verse 3. That we would maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And he gives us some instructions on how we are to do that. First, he says that, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible. In my translation, I say that we should walk with all humility and gentleness. The King James Version actually translates the word humility with the word lowliness. This is different than even our understanding of the word being humble. This is truly to regard oneself as low in status. that we are to regard ourselves with lowliness and gentleness. And all this pointing back to maintaining the unity of the Spirit. What is it that we are supposed to be doing here? You, you see, the unity of the Spirit, and we'll talk about this, I think, some more, is actually damaged by, I think, the, the most common form of sin inside of every man. An ounce of pride that causes us to regard one another with strife or, or even covetousness. That causes us to think our opinions or, or our thoughts are more important than somebody else's or our preferences are so important that they should have an impact on the way that the church comes together and conducts itself. I, I 
So often today we see Christians who would rather rally to the front on a political cause than they would rally to the front on the cause of Christ. And I think in so doing, they actually detract from their own personal testimony. They actually corrupt the purity of the gospel that they proclaim. They cause offense and have no regard for the offense. I think it's unfortunate that we, we live in a world where people have adopted kind of this loose cannon perspective of the way that they use their mouth. Say what I want when I want with no regard for who it offends. And if it does offend somebody, then, well, that's not my problem, it's theirs. And more scrupulously, within the church, Christians who, rather than bearing with one another in love, are actually causing divide. All because we fail to yield to the instruction Paul writes to the church here. That we walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called with lowliness and gentleness. With patience, he goes on. With patience. The word translated here, I think, is actually better depicted if we say long-suffering. Because just as we can say that those who, who are careless with their mouths are an instrument of division within the church, we can also say that those that are easily offended are also the same instruments. With patience, the way that we engage with one another means that we are ready to suffer longly alongside one another. It is no secret that the greatest problem within the entire church is that it is filled with sinners. The church would be a perfect place if we could take sin out of the mix. If the church were filled with perfect people, there would be no need to regard ourselves with lowliness because there would be a humility inside of us that, um, was, that, that presupposed whatever action of gentleness comes from that. If the church wasn't filled with sinners, there would be no need for long-suffering. In fact, if we just lived in a world without sin altogether, there would be no need for patience. In fact, there would be no need for the eager awaiting of a Savior who is coming to return and to call us home. But that's not where we live. And by the way, that's not God's plan for the church. Not right now. There is suffering And it's actually the best mechanism in spurring on spiritual maturity. And there's even suffering within the church because there are members who haven't been wholly sanctified yet. This long suffering that we have with one another points all the way back, and we're building up to bearing with one another in love. That we would maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We look at the instructions that Paul gives us, and we can look at at, at those specific instructions in verse 2. But I think it's actually more important that we understand what these are building up to. 
It's not enough just to look at this and say, I need to, as a Christian, I need to be humble and gentle and patient. But we need to look at what we're actually trying to accomplish. What's the real mission of all of these imperative commands? That we would bear with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And I love these one another commands that we find in Scripture. Because the church, when we really start to understand it, and this is amazing, if we can just pause for a second and understand what Paul's building up to, right? He, he's starting to describe what is this organism that he's established. He, he's drawn out this entire theological truth about God's grace, proclaiming the magnitude and what is so amazing about what God has done in establishing the church. So amazing that, that the angels in heaven were able to celebrate it. So amazing that, that, I mean, we understand that the church is God's plan. It's his plan to bring the good news to the entire world. He doesn't have a plan B because he's an infallible, all-knowing God. He doesn't need a plan B. It's so perfect that when we start to see this picture of this unity of the Spirit, more specifically people from all different backgrounds being joined together as co-equals, co-heirs, raising together that they could one day be seated with Christ, that they can inherit the riches of God their Father and what riches they are. All of this building up because we need to bear with one another in love. These one another commands, this, this word one another shows up over a hundred times in the New Testament, describing the way that the church is supposed to interact, the way that it's supposed to function, what the internal mechanisms of the church are supposed to look like. There's a lot of things we could read and study in the Bible. There are a lot of things that we could get excited and get passionate about. Some of them, I will admit, I am not as well versed in as I should. We can talk about the mechanisms of salvation, and they're amazing, but the truth is I'm never going to be able to understand the magnitude of God's rich grace poured out in my life. We can talk about the end times and the way that God is coming back to reclaim His church. We can talk about the glories of heaven and what heaven looks like, but to be sure, there's a lot of uncertainty even in reading the Bible around some of these things. Over a hundred times in the Bible, this word for one another shows up, giving us instructions on what the church is actually supposed to look like. I believe that the Bible is the inspired, infallible word of God, and that it grants us everything that we need to know for life and for faith. That doesn't mean it tells me everything I could ever possibly know. It tells me everything I need to know. So when I see an emphasis like this, a word showing up over a hundred times in the New Testament, describing what we're supposed to do with one another, I stop and I remark at the significance of actually understanding the church. Actually understanding what is being founded, what is so amazing that the powers in heaven remark as Jesus establishes the church during his earthly ministry. That we would bear with one another in love. 
What is this unity of the Spirit that we are building up to? In verse 3, that we would maintain this unity of the Spirit. And I can only just pause here and say, first, that there is a unity in the Spirit. It wouldn't be possible to maintain something that didn't exist. There is a unity in the Spirit. That we are one in Christ, united together as brothers and sisters, fellow priests, joined together in the church. We are not aliens, but Peter writes that we are fellow citizens. This unity is what lays the foundation of what makes the church so very special. How can we possibly understand what this unity of the Spirit is? First, this unity is definitely not uniformity. I mentioned this greater kind of ecclesiastical picture of Christ's body that will one day be gathered together in heaven. All the churches, not just local assemblies, but the entire saved congregation, all those called to Christ. Can I contend it is all right that every church does not look the same? It is okay that every church does not do things the exact same way. It's all right that the traditions of one church don't make their way into the traditions of another church. Traditions and preferences are not what is important to what we're doing. Just like it's all right that every church member doesn't look or act or behave or think or even have opinions that are the exact same as another church member. It's definitely not necessary. It's definitely not important and it's not essential to the unity that we find in the Spirit. In nature, God proclaims, I think, this mystery when we look out at flowers coming together in the spring. Not one single flower even in the same type of species, look exactly like a neighboring flower. You might recall from this past week, not one single snowflake that canvassed our entire area was an identical match to another snowflake. There's a uniqueness that still bonds us together in unity. So what is this unity? I've said what it isn't. Let me try and say what it is. The truth is, I do not have words. I gather that we will know this unity if we have it, for we cannot keep it if we do not have it. If you want to know what this unity of the Spirit is, you have to know it. If you think about, I mentioned snowflakes falling and their uniqueness from one another, but just think about water droplets. When there is a unity in the Spirit, a water droplet that forms on a glass is claimed by the same water that is in that glass because the water has union with that which is the same. When we have unity in the Spirit as Christians, we are joined together by the same Spirit that is inside of us. There is a compassion that goes with this. You might also understand it relationally if we start talking about 
husbands and wives and those which are separated. When there is a unity of the Spirit in marriage, it doesn't matter how far a husband travels, there is communion with his spouse. What God establishes, He keeps. As Christians, we are joined together with this unity in the Spirit. The second thing that I would note in verse 3 is that we aren't just instructed that there is this unity, but we're told that we should keep it. Which means that this unity in the Spirit is something that needs keeping. It's at risk. It's in jeopardy. It's in trouble. trouble. Because it's easily broken. We find this one another command, and it points back to how our sins naturally move towards breaking the unity that we have in the Spirit. This pride issue I mentioned earlier, that if we fail to identify wholly with Christ in full surrender, we will be unable to live with humility or lowliness. That jealousy and covetousness, because we think we ought to have what another member has, causes strife with one another. Anger, because we're unable to be long-suffering with our brother and sister who's quick with a harsh word, who comes across curt, and instead we become offended and angry. The list of sins that spoil this unity of the Spirit is vast. But we pray that God would protect us from them. This unity needs to be kept because the truth is Satan is busy to mar it. We mentioned, I hope, a great deal what I think is so remarkable in Ephesians 3.9. Let me read it. To bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden in ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God may, might be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Obviously pointing to this manifold wisdom of God being revealed through the establishment of the church, even the angels remarking at it. Don't you realize that if it includes the angels, it definitely includes the fallen angels, the powers not just of the heavenly places, but the powers of this world. Satan sees how remarkable it is what God has established in the church, and he is at work trying to attack it, trying to feed pride, to, to feed feelings that are easily offended and cause strife and anger and jealousy and covetousness within the church, that this unity can be marred. The greatest glories of Christ spring out of the unity in his church. The greatest glories of Christ in our world spring out of His church. (coughs) When we are united in spirit, when we regard ourselves with lowliness and gentleness and long-suffering, loved ones, As we start to apply this text to our lives, I want to caution you that there is an easy temptation to read past this and to say, thank God I'm not like those divisive people that cause disunity in the church. Charles Spurgeon wrote, 
we must seek to purge out from ourselves everything which would divide and to have in our hearts every holy thought which would tend to unite us with our brethren. I am not, when I join a Christian church, to say, I am quite certain I shall never break its unity. I am to suspect myself of liability to that evil, and I am to watch with all diligence that I keep the unity of the Spirit. The application from this text is not to be thankful that that we aren't to cause for breaking this unity. The truth is, the application of this text is to say, that is 100%, without a doubt, me. Being described. The same sinful man that is described in the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2 and in chapter 1 that we looked at as we looked at this old self that is re generated and and created new in Christ is the same man that we wrestle against in our new identity as we identify with Christ. And when we read the encouragement from Paul, our only true motivation should be to say, I don't want to be that. I need to keep a watch over myself because I'm totally capable of that. I'm totally capable of being prideful. I'm totally capable of being so wrapped up in myself that I get offended by a casual word. I'm so capable of of not thinking of myself as lowly, of not being gentle with another person, of not wanting to suffer along somebody else, not being able to bear with somebody else. That is me. But I have an understanding of what the church is, how remarkable it is. And I want to protect myself from that. I want to protect God's church from that. So just like I identified with Christ in my salvation, right? That's what baptism is. It's a a form of identifying. It's I've identified with Jesus' death, His burial, and now His resurrection because I'm dead to my old self. I'm raised to my new self. And one day I'll look forward to the day that I'm resurrected with Christ. Just like I've identified with him, I've also identified with his body, which means I've identified with a local called out assembly who worships God and proclaims his word and does as he instructs and pursues wholeheartedly our full surrender. The real solution to pride is surrender. The the real solution to spiritual growth is surrender. That's what keeps us from regarding ourselves with humility and gentleness. And here's the real warning. A Christian who lacks this type of surrender in their life is a Christian who is stunted in their spiritual growth. The truth is, there might be somebody who is less spiritually mature in the church who who isn't ready to really wrestle with what it means to acknowledge that they need to be humble, that they need to bear with one another in love that they can protect the unity of the Spirit. Those Christians that we bear with in long-suffering will never be an obstacle to your spiritual growth. But every single time that you are the one that refuses to surrender or that I am the one that refuses to yield or to identify with what it means to sacrifice myself before Christ, I will be stunted spiritually. I will not be able to grow past that. If you want to grow in Christ, get out of the way. 
and the church will rejoice because of it. The great glories that Paul is beginning to develop, that he's beginning to write about in this letter, this great establishment of the church. And, and I do pray that, that, that you'd be spending time this week looking at what's written in Ephesians chapter 4 and starting to understand what is the body of Christ. Because what is established in this mystery is truly remarkable. But the glories of Christ are proclaimed to the entire world when the church is united in the Spirit the way that we ought to be. The third thing I'd like to point out, and this is the last thing I want to point out before, uh, before I'll finish. At the end of verse 3, we find that this unity is not just something that we need to keep, but it is something that is bound together. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We've talked about the significance of this word peace um, somewhat recently during our Christmas series. And we talked about what it means to have peace with Christ and peace with one another. And one of the things that I'll, I'll reiterate once again is that peace does not mean a lack of violence or, or um, contention. Peace is something more. It's the establishment of a relationship. This peace is what binds together the unity of the Spirit. Our unity with fellow churches who share an independent testimony of what Christ is doing. This is our principle for cooperative missions. February in the, our BMA community is the, the day that we focus on, on providing and supporting world missions projects, which are a collective project that is sponsored and carried out by the churches of the BMA. Now, what is this weird thing? When we start talking about this, this structure, what is this BMA? It is nothing more than churches with similar testimonies who are pursuing Christ with an understanding of what the Bible has said, coming together and saying that I will partner with you to fulfill this great commission, which is bigger than just the city that I am in. Absolutely. And because of that, churches in Russellville and Northwest Arkansas, all across the state, all across the country, in Texas and Minnesota and California, have agreed with one another that, hey, I'm going to take care of Greenwood, Arkansas. Would you take care of Russellville? And the Great Commission's being carried out in these different places by independent churches. Not only that, but, but this mission's being carried out all over the world in places like the Maldives and China and the Philippines. There's a missionary uh, going to France. Can you believe that France is a country in desperate need of the gospel to be proclaimed? It is. Because we have this unity in the Spirit with our brothers and sisters who aren't necessarily members of the same church, but they believe in the same Christ and they've been saved through the same blood, we're able to participate 
in this form of missions. Locally, we have unity within one, with one another. That even though Christians and the church come from all sorts of different backgrounds, from cultural backgrounds, from social backgrounds, maybe even have different experiences growing up, different educational backgrounds, we work in different places, we do different things, we're still united together by the one thing that we choose to identify with, which is Christ. I would contend this bond of peace relies upon how we identify with our saviors. It is so necessary to grow spiritually, to become more mature, to become more aware and alert, to become more passionate, to become more engaged and to understand what God is doing through your life and what He's doing through salvation, that not only do we commit ourselves to this, not only do we become humble enough to surrender ourselves to God's working, but that we realize that in this new self that has been described, this regenerate member of the church, that we are one with Christ which means we are one with everyone who is one with Christ. And we consider what that means as we talk with one another and we care for one another. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I thank you so much for bringing us here together this morning. God, I thank you for uniting us together in a spirit of peace that unites us as one body before you. And Lord, I pray that you would continue to protect that unity, that you would help us to protect that unity, that we would um, recognize our own culpability in the way that we regard ourselves. And God, I pray that you would help us to become passionate for the church that you have established to understand this great mystery that has been revealed. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.